and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 171, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And we do have full crew in today as we get set for one of the biggest weekends of the year. We're off to Manchester. Manchester, mate. I can't even do it. <laughs> I wouldn't try that when we're in Manchester, actually. Probably not the best idea. Ravi does a much better job of it. <laughs> yeah, if you want to see a good Mancunian impression, just ask Ravi at the event. I'm sure he'll do it on stage. No. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, it is Play Expo weekend. Um, first Play Expo of 2019. Uh, a brand new venue in the middle of Manchester. It's going to be massive. I know lots of people will be listening in the car, probably heading to Manchester, or maybe just discover the podcast this weekend from seeing us at Play. Yeah, and we're going to be doing talks for two days as well. So the yeah. Saturday and the Sunday. And we're joined by some amazing people now. We're talking about this game, Hogs of War, that you're a big fan of, actually, Joe. Yeah, Dan literally told me about this about five minutes before we started today, and I got so excited. Um, really not one to miss. You know? Do, does it beat Worms 3D? Oh, you know what? For nostalgia, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if I played them both, you know, one after the other, I don't know, maybe the opinion would be swayed. But yeah, that's a good question, actually. <laughs> well, we are going to be joined by Jake Habgood, who is a man behind Hogs of War. Um, he worked at Gremlin as well, really interesting guy. Then we'll be doing a panel with, oh, I love doing this last time, Treyguard from Nightmare. He's going to be doing Nightmare Live at Play Expo. Yeah, and don't forget, we're going to have Paul Jury as well. He's going to be talking with Matthew Smith. Oh you know, the, the Jet Set Willy 35th anniversary tour. This is going to be a, a one-off, awesome event. Yeah, he doesn't do many shows. 35th. Yeah, 35 years since I came out. <laughs> and we're going to record that and hopefully have it on the podcast for you next week too. Um, Bedroom Civilians crew are going to be there as well. Anthony oh, Corker, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're going to be able to see some of the PlayStation generation on screen there as well. And of course, all the trading areas and arcades and everything is going to be top weekend. So if you are coming along, uh, do come up to us and say hello and shake our hand. It's always nice to meet people there. We're going to be there all weekend long at Play Expo in Manchester. Now, speaking about this week's show, um, we do have a pretty big one. Kind of talking about new developments in the world of retro. We've got an incredible guest this week yeah so um we got the ceo of v blank entertainment and oh my god the games that they've created you know retro city rampage which yeah. is a fantastic game it's came out on so many systems from like ps4 to ms dos so it fits on a 1.44 <laughs> megabyte floppy and also shakedown hawaii which is going to be coming out in two days so we're going to get some exclusive stuff on that as well what is that game about what's shakedown hawaii then shakedown hawaii is a follow-up of Retro City Rampage, right. but it has extra features like buying property and it has free characters, kind of like in GTA 5. So you it's, can choose it, different paths. It's literally like, imagine GTA, but on a really, really nice looking SNES game. Right. Like, which plays and, really and well. And on steroids. And on the, steroids, All yes. the old features you need. <laughs> <Yes. Yeah. laughs> so Brian Provinciano, the CEO of V-Blank Entertainment, is going to be our guest on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, speaking of events as well, there's something else you're going yeah, to see. Yeah, I'm popping along to the Southwest Amiga group, so that should be fun. Going to get your like, swag on. Yeah, I like going to <laughs> these that? little Amiga groups. <laughs> somewhere in the Southwest somewhere of England. In the just it's a secret. <laughs> it's a secret Amiga cult. But, but if you check these guys, out it's actually getting quite big now i think they have over like 50 people there so yeah. you know that's quite big for a, a little user group event that's and all 50 amiga fans in the entire uk <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right i'll rub it in joe joking, Con- console boy. <laughs> but retro man cave's gonna be there neil's coming yeah yeah well, pixel yeah. vixen it's gonna be yeah. a really cool little event so if you want to find out more about that we'll uh, shove a link in our show notes at the retro hour.com where you can get tickets from uh, actually also our website is the same place you can go to if you'd like to help support this podcast as well now if you are new to the show maybe check is out for the first time. We do get new people in every week. The Retro Hour podcast comes out every single Friday. Every week we bring you a veteran, a really interesting guest from the world of retro and that keeps you up to date on the news that's been happening throughout the week as well. And the only way that we can do this is thanks to your support. Now, if you make a donation of any amount, obviously it all 100% goes back into the running of the podcast and you will find your name in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week, Matthew Martin, Stuart Brand, Jane Hamill, Malcolm McDonald, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, all the information is on the front page of our website at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into the news this week, um, speaking of supporting this show, we've got to say a big thank you to The Economist, who are back. We love The Economist. And we've actually got a little offer for our UK listeners. If you would like to get your own free copy of The Economist, now, highly recommend that you get hold of this because, I mean, The Economist has been around for over 170 years. That is 170 years of delivering trustworthy intelligence that helps people like us, you know, choose where we stand on issues that matter most. And the thing about The Economist is, I mean, 
it started obviously, I mean, by the name of like, you know, talking about the economy and finance. Today, it covers a lot more. It could be politics, business, science, technology, the arts, and even gaming as well. Now, you found this really interesting article about the rise of tabletop gaming. Yeah, so in Nottingham, we actually have Games Workshop here in the city, which yeah. is awesome. We've had Ian Livingston, the founder of Games Workshop, on the podcast. So this is telling us about Games Workshop at the moment, and they're saying that the Nottingham-based company has risen by 660% in profit for the past two years. That is a crazy amount <laughs> of profit. That's a lot of muller for some... Uh, for the for a lot of tabletop <laughs> models, <laughs> tiny, tiny little models. Yeah, and they're saying they're the most successful firm on the FTSE 250 sharing decks. crazy, decks. isn't it? That's the thing about The Economist, though. We often read articles like this, and like it's just stuff that you didn't realise, and it kind of blows your mind. You know, They really do their investigation. And obviously, in this day and age, real news matters more than ever. So if you want to find out more about The Economist, we'd like to give you a free copy of The Economist. And it will come through your door. You'll get a print copy of it. All you have to do, if you're in the UK, is text the word RETRO and send that to 78070. And that's RETRO to 78070 for your free print copy copy of The Economist, the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Now let's get into this week's news stories. Earthworm Jim, what a game. Yeah, so this is some amazing news that's kind of just come out, which is about the Intellivision Amico. Have you heard of this? Now we did talk about this a while ago. This is um, Tommy Tallarico. He's behind Intellivision now, isn't he? Yeah, so he's purchased the rights for Intellivision and he wants to bring this new console called the Amico out. Now... Everyone's wondering, oh, what titles are going to come out for this? Well, the first title that he's kind of announced is uh, Earthworm Jim, a brand new game from the original team as well. Now, this is um, Doug Tenapel's involved, um, Tommy Tallarico, obviously. Dave, Dave Perry. Dave, Dave Perry hasn't done uh, a major game for a decade, the yeah. saying in this article. So yeah. it's a big comeback for him. And it's interesting. I mean, is this going to be a platform exclusive then, at least at long Yeah, term, they're saying that it's going to be an exclusive and they're also going to be live streaming uh, on the 4th of May, Saturday. Tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, they're going to be live streaming the first design meeting, which is pretty awesome, to be honest. I kind of I, I want to watch that because of... Well, I'm not going to be able to watch that because we're going to be at play, but... On your phone, yeah. On my phone, just like walking around. <laughs> they might archive it. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know. Like, I couldn't imagine being in that meeting, like, the pressure... I'm like, right, we've got this IP now. <laughs> like, yeah. we need to make sure we do it right. Like, but, but maybe they might have complete freedom as well because if they've yeah. got like someone like Sony breathing down their necks. Yeah, so it could be, could be actually good. Might not be forced into uh, the last one, Earthworm 3D. Yeah, maybe all the ideas <laughs> they've been holding back for all these years will come out. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, we, we did talk about the, the new Intellivision console, the, the Amico, when it got announced, probably like not quite a year ago now, but not far off. I mean, the aim of it is he wanted to make a family-friendly system that's not mm. going to be like the Xbox or the PlayStation. It's going to be something different. And he's using the Intellivision name, which, you know, I'm, I'm a bit 50-50 about because I don't think it means much to anyone under the age of, like, 35. I think it's a very American-based yeah. name as well. Mm. Yeah. But having titles like this on it, and especially if it's going to be a platform exclusive, that's a pretty good score for it, I think. Yeah, definitely. Like, we look at the Atari box and everyone's going, what games are going to come yeah. on this? And straight away, we already know what's coming on this. Were you a fan of Earthworm, Jim, back in the day? I was. Yeah. Uh, I did have one and two for the Mega Drive. I don't anymore, interestingly. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's something definitely to keep an eye out for. Whether it's going to be something to sway to buy, you know, 100 what's $150 at the moment, so what's that, about £120 console for that one game is, you know, it's going to have to be a pretty good game. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, interesting to say the least, very interesting. But it's, you know, if this is kind of the first big title they've come out with, you know, the console's actually not out yet. I mean, you know, there might be more stuff like this on the way. Which... Absolutely, we, you know. And we're with, not, with not Tommy's connections yeah. as well, you know. I was going to say, we might, you know, who else? Well, I mean, what if we see Gex on there or something like that? <laughs> I, mean, uh, I love a bit of Gex. And you know this weekend now, you know, you mentioned you didn't have Earthworm Jim 1 and 2 then. Yeah. You know someone's going to grab that at the trading area, don't you, at Play Expo. Ah, oh, Joe, I see you're looking for this. <laughs> really really in my face. Price. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll sell you it for £200. Pounds. Yeah, why has that, that £20 been crossed out? <laughs> now, speaking of um, Sega, actually, of course, the big news this week that everyone's been talking about, it's been all over the, the Guardian I was reading, uh, absolutely slated this the new sonic the hedgehog movie trailer the full length one three minutes long has landed oh, bless now, none of us have talked about this <laughs> off the show because we want to get our actual thoughts just on here recorded joe just i love him <laughs> i feel i don't i watched it last night and i'm just i was looking at it and i was just like 
Why why are they doing this to it? Poor Ed Sullivan. Like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go see it at the cinema. He's just... I, I just... Literally, I can't get my words out. <laughs> I love Sonic. And, I, and I'm just like... I, please don't be... Please, please, please don't be bad. At least let the kids love it. Like, it doesn't look amazing, but at least just somebody love it, please. Just <laughs> don't crash and burn. <laughs> what did you think? I thought it looked Bob. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, there's loads of films that have come out recently that have been video games that have been awful, like Angry Birds, um, Tomb Raider, Assassin's stuff like Creed. that. The only decent one I've seen is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like... The, the new remakes oh, of those. Oh, okay, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I thought they were quite good. But this one, I think it's going to be an odd trivia question just, in pub quizzes in the future. I don't know. I think he just... I watched... I hate to bring it up. I, I watched Avengers the other day. And, like, you know, yeah, your animals are... What are they called? Animal before... I can't say it. I know. <laughs> I know what you mean. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. Uh, they look so good in that. And then, like, you've got, like, Detective Pikachu where they look... Okay They've got a certain look to them. And then Sonic, I'm just like, what, what's gone off here? It's got a budget of $90 million. And I'm just like, he just looks off. And a lot of people have said to me online, because I've complained about this sort of rubbish, and a lot of people have said, but Jim Carrey. And I'm like... Dr. Robotnik. Yeah, yeah I, we've, I, got, we've got Jim Carrey, and then we've got Sonic with human teeth. Like. But, but I love I love Jim Carrey. I'm a really big fan, but he hasn't made a decent film in years. No, That's, he's not made a decent uh, you know, film in about 10 years, I yeah, think so. so. Uh, let's see. <laughs> we'll see. At least he's bold. At least at the end of the trailer, <laughs> yeah. and and I've not seen anything stuff anybody praising the fact that it is actually Doctor Robotnik, not Eggman, not Eggman. Yeah. I've not seen anything yeah. about that. I was thinking about that earlier on. I was like, it's actually Doctor Robotnik. At least they've done that. <laughs> it kind of looks like it might focus a bit around him. Maybe kind of his story or something. Like, yeah, kind of maybe. Yeah. You know, they've got the star power. I guess he's the top listed actor in the film. So and James Marsden, you know, X Men actors in there too. Um, but see, the thing I, I've seen mixed opinions on this, and there's an article that I'll link in our show notes in the Guardian that says the Sonic the Hedgehog movie trailer is a 200 miles per hour slap in the face. The thing that everyone seems to be complaining about, though, is I mean, as we've talked about before. The way that Sonic looks in it—that seems yeah. to be the main complaint. But the movie might actually be all right. It just, yeah, it might be all right. It looks, you know, it looks decent enough. It doesn't look—it doesn't look low budget or anything like that. It does look Hollywood. I guarantee but, they'll do the one thing that always freaks me out when Sonic like kisses a human woman, or is in bed <laughs> oh, with a God, human yeah. woman. There'll be something like that. Yeah. There'll be a romance. I that think will freak us all out. I think obviously there's been no say of like any other characters being yeah. in it. But that's what I'm interested to see. Is there going to be a daft? you know, little Easter egg of tails or knuckles or something. Do you know what I mean? But I'm sure, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure it mentions he's from like another planet in the trailer or oh, something. Really? Oh, really? Or another dimension or something like that, so. But it'd explain why he is a way, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't understand who the film's aimed at, though, because if it's, I mean, it sounds horrible to say, does Sonic mean that much to kids anymore if they're aiming at like, you know, seven, eight-year-olds? That's the thing, like. Oh, yeah. I, I think it does with Mania. Before but, but, Mania, it didn't mean anything. But Mania, it was as successful land, but... as Mania, <laughs> <laughs> as, su- as, as successful successful as uh, Mania was, that was the fans. That was yeah, the you yeah, know the twenty five yeah. plus year olds, the you know the thirty year olds now who bought that and went out were interested in that. And you know, lots of people like oh, I've not played a an old Sega game or like that in years. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? So well, once again, I didn't really see much of it being kids. Maybe a lot of a lot of you know, parents who were into Sonic back then going, oh, look at this to their children now. So when we maybe had there's a, that, that audience. But Tom Kalinske on, he said, you know, the worst thing was him seeing Sonic and Mario running together on a game. I'll put it this way, it might be marginally better than the Mario movie. It's going to take some yeah. topping if it's worse yeah, than that, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So uh, yeah. we'll keep an eye on it. It's out later this year. If you haven't watched a trailer yet, I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Let us know your thoughts. Now let's talk about the Evercade. This little handheld device, this looks pretty interesting. Yeah, so this is a multi-cart device as well, and uh, it kind of looks a bit like a Switch, doesn't it, guys? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Maybe a Chinese knockoff of the Nintendo Switch. I was going to say, that's what it looks like. It looks like a Chinese knockoff of the Switch. So, what is this? Um, it's basically a cart that's got standard edition and special edition. Okay. And it's like your old retro cart. You can hook it up to your, uh, like your Switch even, you can hook it up to your TV yeah. with HDMI. Okay. Do all of that stuff. But you can also get these carts in there. And um, they've just got an, a traditional so... Atari collection of carts at the moment. So you've got like Centipede, Missile Command, all the classics. All the classics. And you've got 7,800 games on there as well. So... 
Is there going to be an SD card on it, or is it literally just going to be the the pre-made cartridges? It looks like pre-made cartridges, okay. yeah, from what I've seen. Which it'll probably get hacked. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I look at this and I think, well, you know, if the first thing they're coming out the door with is this Atari collection, um, and they're selling this at here seventy nine ninety nine. It's going to be for the console and the car, but you can get the Atari collection on the Nintendo Switch for about nineteen quid with a more, with more games actually than that in. So. The Switch is actually a very capable retro system. Yeah. There is a lot of retro stuff on there. So I, I'm just, all right, this is cheaper than a Switch, if that's what you want a handheld kind of, you know, Atari or, or Nintendo but console. From or, buying the Switch, you're going to get so much more because it's not just Atari and stuff like that. You've got everything on there. Do you know what I mean? So, And I think they probably got the Atari rights first because Atari were the ones <laughs> handing them all out at the moment. So uh, they were like, right, get the Atari ones. They're easy. Now try and score some other ones and turn it into a multi-cart system. And, you know, I don't want to be too controversial because I know we do have uh, listeners who are fans, but to me, most 2600 games don't hold my interest anymore. No. I, you know, I can play them for like a couple of minutes, but I'm, I'm not going to sit there and play through 20 or 30 of them in a go. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know there will be people who disagree with that. But. but I suppose if you wanted to play like Adventure and some of the older, like, real classics, but yeah, that's a real niche crowd, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and one thing about it as well is it's got a 16.9 screen. Now, a lot of people are saying, you know, in, in this article that I'll link up on Nintendo Live, Mm. Why didn't they put a 4.3 screen on there? Everything's stretched. Mm. Which, you know, that if you're aiming at fans of the originals, that is a strike against it straight away. Well, maybe they might bring out an adapter that could run original carts of some systems or something. I don't know. Maybe that's a way. But at the moment, it seems uh, to have a very small you, appeal for me. You can play it with the original ratios, by the looks of things, with the black mm. yeah. black borders. But like you say, if you're going for that that kind of like real feel nostalgia, why have they done that? Yeah. You know, they don't have to do that, so... I mean, I think, like you said, Ravi, it is a niche audience. I mean, I guess it's someone who... I mean, I think they're going to have to come out with more than just the Atari collection, you know, for launch if they want to get... I mean, if it had, like, a Sega one included and all that, maybe, and if it's cheap enough, half the price of a Switch... I was going to say, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be hard for them to get a Sega collection on there. A Sega collection on everything, so... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it'll come eventually, but... Again, you know, it's cool to see new retro projects, uh, and, it, it, you know, we've only seen pictures of it. I've never held one in my hands. That's one thing about a handheld, isn't it? I think one of the most important things is how it feels. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if well, it felt cheap, then I'd be like, yeah, straight up. Well, talking to Sega collections, have you seen the new Virtua Racing? Now, Virtua Racing is, um, that's a weird game for me. Cause I was a, you know, when it first came out, I was actually really impressed with it. That's kind of 3D polygons. again. Yeah. But again, it's a game that hasn't aged all that well for me when I play it now. Well, this is a really interesting port. So it's uh, Sega's M2 division. Yeah, okay. Charger Virtua Racing. Uh, they basically tried to build it for the Nintendo DS, 3DS. Yeah. Because they lost the source code. They <laughs> so, lost it. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to rebuild it. So they did this whole rebuild version that never got released for the 3DS. Then they found the source code. So <laughs> they've done improvements on this version, added new features for the Switch version. So this is like your ultimate version. They found the source code down the back of the fridge or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like in the Goonies with the map. <laughs> like but that. they're saying that the, the, the way that the polygons are working and displaying on the Switch is just absolutely beautiful compared to the older version. And, you know, they're, they're having stuff like multiplayer support on this it's as well. Eight-player eight online. That's pretty cool. It's uh, pretty cool. And the screenshots here in Eurogamer, um, and they actually do look very sharp. Yeah, these, these yeah. Kind of upgrade, you know, the HD, obviously, now. But again, it, it's something like Virtual Racer was a game that really, you know, it's hard to imagine all these years on, but how, how groundbreaking it was when it came out. You know, it was the first time I'd seen, like, you know, a 3D polygon racing game. Before they had, like, Outrun and stuff like that. Totally, and uh, Virtual Fighter, I remember that. But they were also saying on this they can get it up to 60 frames per second as well, yeah. which is really going to change the experience. Yeah, better than the Mega Drive version, I imagine. Not oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Move over, you know, Forza and all that. <laughs> We've got Virtual Racer back. The daddy's back. <laughs> but, I mean, you're right, next when Ridge Racer and that came out, I just had no interest yeah. at all in uh, Virtual it's Racer. It's good to see that they're putting proper effort into these Sega Ages ports to have them on the Switch and actually like spending time on them, making it the best version possible. It's really Not just good. churning them out like they used to on the PS2 and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, or the PC ports. Yeah. Well. I mean, again, it goes back to what we said before about what a good 
good retro platform for Switches, mm, actually. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, again, it's something I'll probably buy just to have it in my collection anyway. So if you want to find out more about that, I'll put that and everything else we talked about this week in our show notes at theretrohour.com. If you're coming along to Play Expo Manchester this weekend, we will see you there. Uh, do come say hello. We're doing talks all across the weekend. We'll be milling around as well in the arcade. And, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Come, come and have a drink. Yeah, Ravi will be at the bar. As well. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you're going to be there, Ravi. So if you are coming along to Play Expo Manchester this weekend, we will see you there. If not, we'll be out again next Friday. And right now, let's get into this week's special guest talking about new school retro. We're joined by Brian Provinciano, the CEO of V-Blank Entertainment. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. We're going to be talking about new school retro uh, with this week's guest, Brian Provinciano from V-Blank Entertainment. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Huge fan. Been listening for a long time. Really appreciate that. And we're big fans of your games as well. Now, we've, we've got to talk about these um, your incredible titles and just a moment. Retro City Rampage and Shakedown Hawaii. Uh, but I mean, you know, kind of going back to your earliest kind of gaming and computer memories. I mean, where did the, the journey with gaming start for you? So I have two distinct memories. One was uh, playing Super Mario Brothers on the NES at a friend's house because I didn't have my own NES for a while. So being able to just go to anyone's house and play on an NES was in itself just huge. Uh, it, it was it was the biggest toy, the biggest thing uh, of of my uh, youth growing up. And the second thing, which was a bit of a more disappointing one, was that we had a 286 PC and I really loved Ghostbusters. And we went to the computer store and my dad said I could pick out a game. And they only had Apple II and Commodore 64 versions of Ghostbusters. Oh. Uh, and so I was really bummed out. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> that's, that's the thing is it was really fragmented back then and you had to find your exact computer's uh, type of game. You uh, pulled Dan's heartstrings there because he's an old Ghostbusters fan. Absolutely. Oh, I, I love yeah. that game as well, the Activision game. Very good. When- yeah, yeah. It was, there, was, uh, there was also a weird one. It was really weird. It was Ghostbusters 2 on DOS. And yeah. it's, it's this weird one where you're pretty much using the mouse to shoot stuff. Right. And then when you lose a guy kind of like the NES Ninja Turtles, you have to rescue them. And you have to rescue them by climbing on the bu- the side of the building on a mental institution. <laughs> it is wow. the most bizarre thing. So when did you decide you kind of wanted to work with computers rather than just play with them? I do remember from a really young age drawing pictures and stuff, kind of dream games. And so I would just draw them on lined paper at school and then on MS Paint. Uh, when I would get home and it was just this whole fantasy that maybe one day this art could be a game and because I never I didn't really know any programmers that I could ask to put my art into a game and so I eventually was just like oh, I'll figure out how to do this programming thing myself and then I ended up becoming a programmer and the art kind of slipped by the wayside. You were messing about with emulators what was the first kind of emulator you tried and did you try playing any ROM hacks or did you do any ROM hacks yourself? I don't think I really did any ROM hacks, but um, the first one uh, was uh, Nesticle, which I was so naive that back then I didn't get the pun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I remember also I th- the, the very old C64 emulator back in the DOS days. And um, I was... <laughs> I, I was afraid to use it at first because I thought it was going to turn my computer into a C64 permanently. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, once I figured that stuff out, it was it was pretty exciting. Um, and but I you know I was I was still mostly uh, a hardware guy. Like I really wanted to play the games on the real hardware, and so. Luckily, I did most of my NES collecting back before the prices skyrocketed, and I just can't believe the prices they are now. (laughs) Well, how did you get involved in the industry professionally then? And what was kind of your first gaming related job? I had been working on software and gaming stuff just for fun for free um, and just posting it on my website. And that kind of got the attention of people. And so my first few jobs, luckily, uh, very luckily, I didn't actually even have to apply for them. They just kind of came knocking and they said, hey, we saw your stuff. That's pretty cool. Do you want to work for us? And so the first game job I had uh, was at Digital Eclipse, and that was just the most wonderful time. I I absolutely loved it because 
we got to work on not just like a whole bunch of different hardware and stuff. So the Jack's Joystick TV games, Nintendo DS, they were still doing Game Boy Advance stuff at the time. But I also got to work on all these cool different IPs because they were a work for hire studio. And so they did everything from Midway stuff to Namco stuff to Capcom stuff, uh, Sega, the list goes on. And being able to actually have my name on some of these games, even if it was just an emulation or a port or a, or whatever, it was still really, really cool. You worked on commercial emulators like Midway's Arcade Treasures uh, for the PSP. What's the yeah. difference between a kind of commercial release and an amateur one in this regard? What do you have to look out for? Right. So it was, it was really fun. Um, the thing is, is that... I, things have probably changed now because systems are so powerful. But back in those days, the the PS2 and the PSP weren't necessarily powerhouses. And because, you know, you've got a deadline, you've got a schedule, the emulators were really made for the games. So they weren't necessarily general emulators that would just run anything. Um, and the Mortal Kombat games on PSP were very interesting because... We were emulating it, but it wasn't hitting the 60 FPS that we wanted. And so what I ended up doing is going through the original Mortal Kombat 2 and 3 source code, figuring out uh, the key routines. Like I wrote a profiler to profile the ROM, find out where it was slowest, and then I rewrote those portions uh, in actual native code on the PSP. And so it would jump out of the emulator, run just regular PSP code and then back into the emulator to do things like draw the scaling floor underneath their feet and stuff because that for example was really just throttling the emulator uh, and so it was they became kind of some of them became this hybrid where it was like 95% emulated 5% just running new code uh, that did the same thing and and I really really enjoyed that stuff because it was just uh, it was it was a really fun problem to solve. And, you know, with something like that as well, when you're appealing to fans of the originals, you know, you've got to get it right, haven't you? Otherwise, people are going to spot the difference and complain. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I'm a pretty big stickler for 60 FPS myself. <laughs> well, you also worked for EA, and I was um, hearing that apparently you had to remove the original NHL player roster. Um, yeah, so <laughs> that was luckily also at, at Digital Eclipse. So they did some work for hire for EA, and... We were able to work on the NHL 94, NBA Live 95, and a couple other ones. Um, and they were, I think the story was that the Xbox had better graphics, and so they wanted to make the PS2 versions special too. And so they had these pack-ins. So if you bought NHL 06, you would get NHL, NHL 94 as a bonus. But unfortunately, uh, they didn't necessarily have the rights to all these players. And so I had to go into the ROMs and remove the players. And the cool thing was is that then we went around the office and it was like, hey, does anyone want to be in NHL 94? <laughs> and so uh, I made myself Wayne Gretzky. And uh, because we're based in Vancouver, of course, like first dibs, everyone else was like Pavel Bure or whatever, all the Canucks. And... Uh, so that was really fun. And after a while, though, with like, uh, I think it was with with FIFA or something, there were just so many names that I had just wrote a program to generate random names. <laughs> um, but we had to do a bunch of stuff because the player select in some of those games was Sega Genesis controllers, Mega Drive. And so I replaced them with little pixel art PS2 controllers, but then because the platforms are very, very picky about exactly how the PS2 controller is represented or, you know, even nowadays how the Switch Joy-Con are represented and so on. There were all sorts of little things. It was it was really interesting because um, it wasn't just the players and, and the controllers. There were a whole bunch of things that we had to change. And that's that's, I think, one of the tricky things that happens as to why some old games that we love just don't get re-released because there'd be a laundry list of things that need to be changed for one reason or another. Um, in fact, we were, we were, Williams was acquired by Midway and we were emulating Williams games 
under the Midway banner. And for some reason, we had to remove the Williams logos from the games, even though Midway, I think, owns Williams. So I don't know uh, what the situation is. But yeah, it's just uh, when you're doing commercial emulations, there's all sorts of stuff like that 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 need to be changed. Which are the best emulators, kind of in your opinion, that are either commercial or non-commercial? Um, that's a good question. I mean, for NES dev, when I was doing that, uh, and I do hope to get back to it, uh, I was using FCEUX, I believe that one just, it happened to get the accuracy and it had a really good debugger. So when I was doing the NES dev stuff, I was using what's called the MMC5 mapper and that it was released in 89. And so it's pretty much the most powerful NES mapper that Nintendo did. And so it does a bunch of stuff with the hardware. And some NES emulators at the time, I'm sure they all emulate it perfectly now, but at the time, some of them couldn't do that. And that was the the most robust emulator. But uh, I'm not necessarily too on top of emulators these days because I still end up playing a lot on on hardware and stuff like that. Well, at the moment, we're seeing obviously quite a big influx of these um, commercial mini consoles. We've obviously had the mm-hmm. Nintendo ones and the uh, the PlayStation one, which actually ran on an open source and the PCSX emulator. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that. Some of them have done well and some of them are not. I mean, what, mm-hmm. do, you, what do you think is important when developing something you know, like that, for example? Yeah, I picked up all of them and um, it, it was... The most plausible explanation seems with the the PlayStation Classic was just that they probably thought, okay, well, these European versions have e-figs in them, English, French, Italian, Spanish, German, so we'll put those in instead and not really thinking or realizing or maybe just prioritizing that versus having the 60 FPS versions on there. And I think that that alone <laughs> contributed a lot to its failure is just when word got out that some of these games were 50 or maybe 25 Hertz. Uh, I, I think that really made a dent. And then of course, the other thing is just that they didn't necessarily have the best lineup. I mean, Crash Bandicoot, how could it not have Crash Bandicoot? But I think it's it's pretty clear because they have the new remastered one now, and so they probably didn't want to cannibalize sales by putting the old one on there. And I think it felt a bit rushed as well. It felt like Nintendo took their time with their releases, but it kind of like Sony were like, oh, we, we better get a mini console out and just kind of rushed something out there. Yeah, yeah, that could very well be. At least it looks really cool, and, and the controllers do work on PC, so that's really cool um unfortunately they're not dualshock but uh, you know if if you want to be playing your playstation emulators on pc then definitely i mean actually that is something i will say um i i i was playing with ps2 emulators and that is something that's really really cool because it can uh, upscale the games to native resolution and that's something that i've actually bugged sony i don't know if words gotten anywhere but um I've just bugged them because I've like I bought all these PS2 games that I already owned on disc on PS3, hoping that they would be upscaled, but instead they played the exact same with the same load times. And uh, so now, if even though I own like I think I probably own <laughs> I own a few PS2 consoles, uh, and I prefer to play those on emulator now because I want to play in you know native resolution with tiny pixels and just crisp lines uh, instead of the old 240p or 480. You also mentioned uh, that you work with the Jack's Joystick TV games. They were like these small uh, all-in-ones, right? Like the Atari all-in-one. Yeah, uh, that was really interesting. We The dev kits, so to speak, were just these, <clears throat> these bare boards with no case, and they were super vulnerable. And at one point, I actually... Like, that was the neatest thing, because nowadays most of us... I mean, a lot of people nowadays, they're just downloading Unity and making a game. But back then, um, I actually had to make a trip or two to Radio Shack to buy a soldering iron for the office and solder some stuff uh, on the Jack's dev kit uh, just to as part of developing the game. So it was really neat that I got to kind of flex my programming and hardware muscle. And uh, it was interesting because... The final product was going to be this weird joystick shaped like whatever, because if you remember back then, they released like a Spider-Man one that was that had this joystick with webbing on it. And there was the Pac-Man one that was shaped like Pac-Man with a and and so we were just developing with this bare board and a third party PS one or PS2 controller and had to try and figure out, OK, the 
the circle button is going to be mapped to whatever when it's actually made into some sort of joystick. Um, and the tools were really kind of slow and, and it wasn't as simple and easy to develop for as other platforms, but at the same time, it was really awesome to me because I was able to basically do a 16-bit game commercially, even though I had missed the boat on actual uh, Sega and Super Nintendo games. Well, going back to 8-bit, I mean, you decided to build your own NES dev kit and compiler. I mean, that must have been quite a challenge. Was that was that a big job? It was a bit of a big job. Luckily, I was back then I was on IRC, and there was the hashtag, as you call it now, uh, NESDEV chat room and there were a bunch of really cool people including kev Triss back then and he was super helpful just giving me all the pointers and tips and now he's involved with the uh um all of those like the analog nt and stuff like that so uh i guess a lot of us were all rooted back in that nes dev irc channel when i do get back into nes dev one of the things I'm going to do is build a whole bunch of new tools because back then I built a dev kit, I built a, a compiler and all of that. Um, if I were to go back, I would build like a debugger and all sorts of other stuff now because I think that there's just, I, I was, I thought it was really important to develop and test and build on the actual hardware back then. And now I've kind of changed my mind and it's like, it's way faster and easier just to develop in an emulator and even better a custom emulator. Like I could just whip up my own emulator that's maybe integrated with Visual Studio or something like that. Uh, and then just test on hardware every few weeks to make sure everything's still working. Well, you started games development using kind of games creation software. And then right. you moved into the idea of your own engine. How, how did that come about? Yeah, so I started in Click and Play. You've done your research. Um, and I, that's the same thing that, um, Derek, you, who did Spelunky also started in and it was, it was really cool. It was, it was done by Maxis. Well, I mean, you guys interviewed the, the guy behind it. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really handy, but at some point I was like, okay, I need to write C plus plus. I need to do real code or something like that. And so I started learning that and kind of went from there. And back then this was the late 90s. There weren't really tools like Unity and stuff weren't really and weren't really there. So writing your own engine was pretty standard. It's it's really funny how now if anyone builds their own engine, it's it's like a shock. But back then it was the normal thing. And I it's hard to say. I mean, it's like I am a programming tech type guy, so I do like having my own engine and writing my own engine, but at the same time if I were starting from scratch now, knowing what I know now, it might make more sense to start with something like Unity because building your own engine takes a long time. And the advantage I had was that I built it. I probably wrote some of the code when I you know, wasn't even working. And then I wrote some of it while I was working other jobs. So there was never really an imminent deadline. And then eventually... Once you're actually in indie, despite the fact that my games take so long to make, there still are deadlines and you can't necessarily spin your wheels for years building an engine before you build a game. So why did the kind of arcade style GTA really hook you and get you into thinking that you wanted to create your own kind of version? Yeah, I was a huge fan of GTA since the top down ones. And I played GTA 2 every day for a year straight. And then when GTA 3 came out, I picked that up and I was still playing GTA 2 a bunch. I, I just felt like they were both great. One wasn't, I mean, uh, the GTAs have now evolved to become just so amazing and incredible. But at the time, I was just like, no, they're like apples and oranges. I love them both equally. And uh, I had actually, like, I grew up playing a bit on DOS and stuff, but I was mostly a console gamer. And then during the... It was around the N64 era when I transitioned to be more of a PC gamer, and GTA 3 was what made me buy a PS2 and go back to console gaming. So that was like the clear system seller. So where did you kind of have the idea of Retro City Rampage, and were you directly coding and putting custom code onto the NES at the time and developing on that as your environment? Yeah, um, so the the idea was... Um, it's really interesting because how the, the idea evolved. The very, very first seed of the idea was kind of a proof of concept to say, hey, there's this GTA 3 game. It's really awesome. It's 
Uh, it's a 3D game on PS2, which was the current console at the time. I want to prove that it's possible to recreate something that has the same fun, the same feel, the same type of missions, but on an 8-bit NES as, as if it were released back in the 80s. And as time moved on, I, I kind of, I got really busy with my day job and I didn't have as many hours in the day. And so I had to kind of reassess what I was doing. And so I just decided, you know what, I, this GTA stuff isn't really on the NES. It's It became really tricky because it was such a big, ambitious game and I was building it in assembly language on the NES and it was running out of memory and then I have to rework stuff and so on and so forth. And eventually I was like, you know what, I would rather just make an 8-bit style game that is as fun as possible and has every idea I want in it as opposed to kind of holding it back with NES limitations. And so that was when I decided to make an original game that was, you know, a top-down open world thing that ran on modern hardware and just kind of looked like an NES game. But it's funny because now as all these years have passed and back then I was like, you know what, it would just be too hindered if it was actually running 100% on the NES. So I want to just kind of go all out and make a cool 8-bit style game. Now as time has passed, I'm like, no, I really think I could pull off a really <laughs> cool thing despite all the limitations. And now I do want to go back. But a lot of people have asked me, like, are you going to finish that old thing? Are you going to release it? And And to me, it's kind of like... I have come so far as a programmer since then. It's like, no, I just want to start something new from scratch that really taps into the NES and and once again prove what can be pulled off as an open world game on the NES. I mean, you know, looking at the concept of the original Grand Theft Auto games, and was there anything about those that you wanted to improve with your game? Yes. So, interestingly, a lot of these things kind of just emerge naturally, and a lot of open world games have them now. But in GTA 3, the one of the or all of those GTAs, even up through four. The thing that is has aged the poorest is the the grinding and the driving from A to B and the lack of checkpoints. So GTA four for me became a game of try and find a cab, try and find a cab, get to the mission, die, try and find a cab, try and find a cab, get to the mission, die. And then you'd get super frustrated because you spent more longer trying to find a cab than it would have taken to just drive there, but you didn't want to drive there because it was such a long drive. <laughs> and um, so with Retro City Rampage, I made the missions shorter and I added checkpoints. And of course, even as post-launch with updates, I added even more checkpoints. And I took special care to ensure that it always created a car near where you were so you could easily hop in and wouldn't need to look for one. And so little improvements, and I think that one of the side effects of that was that it ended up resonating really well with handheld gamers, and I think that that goes back to, I mean, that's kind of almost a deeper rabbit hole to talk about that, but the whole, is a huge shift between the Game Boy games and the PSP games, whereas PSP were much more console-based, and Game Boy were really a distinct beast, and I think part of it was that Game Boy games were generally designed around bite-sized play sessions, whereas PSP were much more like couch console experiences. And I think that that could have contributed to why the Game Boy was still so successful after the PSP came out. It, it's strange because of thinking about it, the kind of 2D GTA games were very defined and they had certain stuff like gang territories, they had p property purchase, all these kind of things that were kind of a bit lost in the um, 3D versions. Did you feel that this like genre just suddenly changed well the story definitely took the front seat in the 3d ones and it's something that i've struggled with a bit as a developer because building the story building the the cutscenes, and trying to make it all cohesive is a lot of work and if i were to just do a gta1 style game that's just pretty much no story just some phone calls so to speak and uh driving from A to B, shooting stuff, doing whatever, a really arcadey experience. Not only could it be developed a lot more quickly, but it could also um, really focus much more on the gameplay because being one guy doing most of this development, I just have help with art and audio. Um, it's it's always a juggle in, my, in the hours in the day to 
try and make the gameplay as tight as possible, make the story as tight as possible, and so on. And if I were just doing a GTA 1 style game, I could focus 100% just on the gameplay, which I think could be really cool. Um, it's, but at the same time, you know, it is really fun building these stories. And I think that when it comes to these genres, the one problem with the story is that it's not as replayable as the gameplay. So, for example, GTA 5, I played through it the first time, loved it. I was like, wow, Rockstar's got, you know, they got their mojo back. They're, they're on top. This is amazing. And when I went to play it a second time, I'd already seen the story. I'd already, I wanted to just skip cutscenes and whatever, and I couldn't necessarily. Um, and it, it wasn't nearly as fun the second time just because I just wanted to play the gameplay and didn't really care about the story. But one thing I loved, you know, when playing Retro City Rampage was kind of, you know, it's a real love letter to, especially the 80s with stuff in there, like, you know, Back to the Future references and Bill and Ted and that kind of stuff too. I mean, uh, how, how close could you kind of get to that kind of stuff without getting sued? Did you have to be careful? Yeah, I was definitely really careful to make things as debranded as possible and and all of that. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing because it was one of the first games if not the first, I'm not quite sure, but it was really early on as far as the whole pop culture video game reference type thing. And it seems nowadays, since so many indies have gone down that route with just there, I'm, I'm sure we couldn't even count how many indie games have are filled with references and nods and stuff. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do something different with Shakedown because it's like if, if everyone's doing something, then I kind of want to do something else. I don't know what it is about it, but I just I like to just do something different. Well, you mentioned that you got some help with the art style and the art was fantastic. The palette choice as well and the uh, soundtrack. How did you go around finding these artists? Yeah, um, it was really quite lucky. Um, I, I do have trouble sometimes finding the, the right people. And with Retro City, I totally lucked out because... I had I reached out to a few pixel artists and then one wasn't available but they recommended me this other guy named Maxim and I reached out to him and the rest was history like he was perfect he was amazing and everything I would just say hey do this thing and then he would just do it and it was perfect the first time and it was even better than I imagined um and I thought that that was the way it always was and it turned out that I was just super lucky and uh often you know having a vision for a game you kind of you might get some art in and then you'll be oh tweak the hair a bit tweak this tweak that and and that's kind of more the standard protocol so it was just kind of retro city was just this magical time where just everything clicked and everything worked and and it was no different on the audio side it was super crazy where so i had three composers so the first composer i actually happened to have worked with at uh digital eclipse and I thought like, oh, he's out of my price range. He's way too AAA for me. He's, But I'll just reach out to him and see if he knows someone who could be on the project. But then to my surprise, he was like, no, I'd be happy to be on the project. And then he said, oh, and I was also browsing online and I found this other guy who's in town and he's been doing NES style music. Maybe we should reach out to him. We reached out to him. That was Matt Creamer. And uh, he was just incredible and amazing. And And he just knocked it out of the park and then has knocked it out of the park again on shakedown and then finally uh vert the famous famous vert behind shovel knight and all those way forward titles and contra 4 and the list goes on uh really was just like the pinnacle of nes music and i thought there's no way he'll say yes but doesn't hurt to reach out and i reached out and he said yes and so yeah, just the whole Retro City team just came together through total sheer luck, and and it's something like that that just does not happen often. Well, one thing I think is really cool is um, you know looking at the platforms that you can get Retro City Rampage on. I mean, you got you know your PS4, PS3, Xbox 360, Switch, and then looking on your website, there's also a little uh, MS DOS logo there as well. Mm -hmm. You put the game onto a high density 1.44 megabyte floppy disk. Yeah, so that was really really fun. Um, it's it's one of those things where when you're building for these retro platforms, there isn't necessarily a huge audience. And so you can't necessarily build a game and try and fund it with DOS or with NES or something. 
But if you can fund it with, let's say, PS3, PS4, or Steam, or whatever, and then you, then you know you, you're like, okay, well, the game's development has been paid for luck because you know the game did well on those other platforms. So now I can just kind of take a vacation, so to speak, and just do something that's not going to make a dime, <laughs> but do it for fun. And uh, surprisingly, the DOS one actually did make some money, but um, it's a rabbit hole where. At first, it's just like, oh, I'm just curious. How would it run on DOS? And so I do a little bit of work and see, oh, it actually does run on DOS, but it's a little slow and it uses too much memory. Could I make it faster and could I reduce the memory? And then one thing leads to another and then I end up just going down the rabbit hole. And once it got to that point where it was like, okay, it can fit on like, let's say one and a half floppy disks. Okay, well, let's try and see if I can fit it on one. And that was where the real work came. And it was just figuring out every little nook and cranny to, to squeeze it to fit on that single floppy disk. And um, just to kind of prove that it could be done. And it was, it was so fun. And the Game Boy Advance thing, which eventually I'll finish and, and um, show off, was the exact same origin where I was just like, I'm curious how would this run on a GBA? And then I did a crude quick port and it ran really, really, really slowly. Um, but then I was like, oh, well, but could I make it faster? And then it's just like, okay, if I optimize this, 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 this. And, and then it just becomes this crazy thing of, uh, wow, now I've spent all this time <laughs> doing this port. Well, I saw the video that Clint from LGR did, you know, when he played it, and he, he was a big fan. I guess that must have got quite a bit of attention to the, the MS-DOS version. It did, yeah. I'm a huge fan of his channel, so it kind of was really cool to see him uh, to see him play the game and, and show it off. That definitely, that probably got the most eyeballs on the DOS version out of anything. You also mentioned the uh, Game Boy Advance <laughs> port there. You've sent us a little video of it kind did, of running yeah. and it looks really smooth actually really good fun um oh. will you ever be making this public or are you going to be waiting till after shakedown well i've been kind of nudging nintendo because i'd, I'd want to do it somewhat officially or with their blessing or something so at the very least maybe i could kind of get permission to demo it at e3 or pax or something like that um but like i yeah, I want to I, I want to somehow try and get that Nintendo seal of approval. I know that that's very tricky to do, but I saw that Capcom had released the SNES carts for Street Fighter. So I'm like, well, there's got to be someone at Nintendo that's given some sort of thumbs up. So there's still hope. Well, how long did it take for Retro City Rampage to become a commercial success? And how did other retro style developers react to that? Yeah, it was it was very interesting because I was very fortunate to be in this really great window in the indie scene. I, I'd consider myself basically the second wave. So like I'd say negative one or the zero wave were when people were releasing indie games and trying to sell them on their own website and having PayPal links or something like that. Wave one was when Steam really took off, Xbox Live really took off, and we had Braid and Meat Boy and World of Goo and so on. And those really were amazing because I think a lot of people were inspired by the success of those games, thinking like, wow, I can I could do this too. And so I was in wave two, and it was it was very uh, interesting because Back then, the indies were basically getting their 15 minutes of fame, and so I was very fortunate to be part of that. And so everyone was covering indie games. There were tons of articles, videos, stories about it, and we were getting a lot of attention. And so coming off the heels of the success of Braid and Meat Boy and getting all of this attention, and I've spoke with many other devs at the same period, we all thought like, wow, we're going to be the next Meat Boys, we're going to be the next uh, uh, World of Goo and all of that. And when it launched, it had a good launch, but not as great as I had hoped, especially considering all the hype and everything. And then it picked up and it snowballed, 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 word got out, word got out, word got out. And by the by, you know, six months later, it was a huge hit. And it's it's a story that you don't necessarily hear as often. And I, I think that usually most games, it's like they're either a hit out of the gate or they're not. 
I, I think it just came down to it was a, a different time. And also, I think our expectations were a lot higher because we saw Meat Boy was so huge out of the gate. So these other indie games will be too. And, and with them, it was a little bit more of a slow burn. And that resurgence of like, you know, pixel art as well, that, that kind of came around around that time, didn't it? You know, which, which was refreshing to see. I mean, I don't know whether people just missed it or I'm not sure what, what the reasoning was there, but it, it is nice to see it having a comeback. Well, I'll tell you a funny story, actually, is that back when I went indie, it was pixel games weren't really prevalent. Mega Man 9 was the first real breakout one. And up until that point, I had been working on this pixel art 8-bit style game, and people around the office knew about it and this and that. And it was the general consensus, like, no platform, like no console platform is going to release some pixel game. Uh, good luck. Like uh, it, cause it was hard enough to get licensed, uh, to start a, a company and get licensed to release a game on PlayStation or Nintendo um, back then, even if you were trying to build uh, a AAA game or whatever, or a AA game with a team of experienced developers. And it was, even if it was like 3D, it was tricky. And you had to get an office, you had to incorporate a company, you had to do all these things. And so back then, the when I was floating it with the idea, people were pretty blunt with me, and I totally understand, and I don't hold any hard feelings. But they were just like, "Dude, like you're crazy. Just keep your day job. No one is going to buy a pixel game, and no platform is going to license your company to release a pixel game." Uh, and then Mega Man Nine happened, and. You'd think that that would have actually been the point where I would say, oh, look, look, there is an audience. People are buying pixel games and the new platforms are releasing pixel games. But no, no, no. I actually was worried. I thought, oh, no, Mega Man 9 stole my thunder. They did the pixel thing. I can't do the pixel thing now. No one's going to care. They're going to think I'm copying it. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I was kind of like, you know what? I've got this game in me that I want to build that I need to get out of my system. And... I've already missed the boat because Mega Man 9 beat me to it. So at the very least, maybe I could be the second pixel game that comes out. I just need to do this. And then I quit my job and and the rest is kind of history. Well, next week, the second game is going to be out, the follow-up Shakedown Hawaii. So tell us about this title then. What's kind of the story and what what, what do you do in the game? So it's, it's an interesting... Uh, there was an interesting genesis to this game, which was... After RCR, I, I experimented with a few ideas, and some of the core ones that I wanted to tackle were gameplay-wise, having a destructible environment. So in this world, just like everything can be destroyed other than the buildings. And so that in itself just makes the world really messy and crazy. And then the second thing was satirizing the basically convenience fees and subscription wear and all of the modern annoyances that we always deal with on a daily basis. And the idea was like, okay, all these open world games, you're always some sort of gangster or gang member or something. What if you were some white collar business guy, but somehow the missions still devolved into shootouts and carjackings? <laughs> and uh, so that actually turned out to be a much harder thing to do than it sounded on like on paper because I wanted to make it somewhat plausible. So it's like, okay, so how are you going to uh, add subscription fees to your business and how is that going to <laughs> turn into carjackings and shootouts and in a plausible scenario? And so it took a while to figure out the way to do that um, because... It was a subject matter that I, I wanted to poke fun at in a really comedic, funny way. I didn't want it to come across as a PSA or uh, a rant or anything like that, because that's not where it was coming from. And in Retro City Rampage, there was a mission that kind of railed on the dark side of video game publishing, <laughs> which is, to me now, sticks out like a sore thumb and just makes me cringe. It set the ceiling for me with Shakedown, where I was like, okay, I can't do that. So I need to make sure that every mission I do that's poking fun at business practices does not come across as a rant, does not come across as cring cringy, is subtle, and so on, and is playful. And it did take a very long time, though, where originally the game itself kind of was pretty much mission after mission of you're in the boardroom, you're coming up with this harebrained scheme inspired by real business practices to screw over customers, and then gameplay ensues. But 
it wasn't really coming across necessarily as funny or tongue in cheek. And what really was the light bulb moment that made the game come together was then was when I decided, hey, how about this character is constantly on the other end. He's constantly having to deal with convenience fees and and misleading packaging and, and all of that stuff himself. And that was where the the game found its sweet spot of comedy where it's like, okay, well, this guy is this evil CEO who's constantly trying to screw over consumers, but he's getting screwed over more than the people he's screwing over. Um, and, uh, and it just, that was where, you know, it kind of found itself. Did you uh, take much influence from the modern GTAs? Because we all know Vice City had that kind of 80s theme. And also the uh, GTA 5 had three different character choices and you have three different characters in this one. I do. Um, it's it's interesting because they weren't directly referenced, and uh, the three characters thing evolved organically. And after it evolved, it made me really wonder what the roots of it were in GTA V. Um, I'd heard rumors that they had toyed with the idea way back with San Andreas, so it was an idea that had been, I guess, on their minds for a long time. In my case, uh, it evolved because... Originally, the game was just the CEO character, but I wanted it to be somewhat plausible, even though it's a totally goofy, zany game. And the the point was, is like, if you're the CEO that's somewhat a public figure, you can't necessarily be going around shooting stuff and whatever. So that was where phase two was, okay, well, he'll have a disguise. And so early on in the game, you go and you get a disguise and then you can go out and when you start to get your hands dirty and do really bad stuff, you wear a disguise to hide yourself. But even with that, there were a bunch of missions where I'm like, this doesn't really feel in character for a CEO to be doing this, even wearing a disguise. And so then from there, I was like, okay, he should have some like right-hand man, some like basically enforcer type guy who does the really rough stuff. And so it became two characters. And then from there... I wanted to add more humor and more comedy, and that was where his delinquent son came in. And so I started writing all of these missions where his son was an aspiring DJ wannabe, uh, <laughs> not not as talented as you. <laughs> and um, and uh, then it was just missions of him trying to like go on auditions and not getting them, and trying to join a gang to get gangsta cred and and fumbling there and just a complete buffoon who's just completely incompetent and allowed me to weave in all of these missions that weren't necessarily directly white collar spreadsheet business type themed missions but then i was able to weave it all together and and make it all fit um but uh at the end of the day the three characters kind of were a way to mix in all these different facets of the genre and and i think that that's probably similar to uh what gta 5 did because Trevor is a very crazy, distinct character from Michael and so on. And I think for me as well, the fact that, you know, I, I was like, a, you know, back in the 90s, a delinquent teenager who wanted to be a <laughs> DJ, actually. Uh, I probably enjoy <laughs> playing this. <laughs> yeah, it, it really, um, it's, it's really a lot of fun because you pull from things where the, the father's constantly nagging the son and, and but at the same time, the son, they're, they're all buffoons in the game, but at the same time, it's like, the father's ragging on the son and saying, get a job, this or that. But at the same time, the father has no clue how modern technology works and the son does. And so they both have kind of their strength, strengths and weaknesses. Well, this game looks absolutely huge as well. And some of the stuff that you've put in there, like buying property, gaining territory, um, it's what I used to do on GTA. I used to build an empire. Was this kind of a conscious move to bring those things back? I, you know, I wanted to make it where in a lot of games, it's like, okay, you can buy a few properties. And I thought to myself, a few, like, that's not as satisfying. What if you could buy all of them? <laughs> and so that was really a driving force. And it took quite a bit of time, especially to try and figure out ways to weave it in. And it was very fun by the end, because a lot of these things, you end up just having light bulb moments and things come together at the last minute. And one of the things was just figuring out a way to weave it into the gameplay without it uh, getting in the way. Because number one, some people is, you know, a lot of people are loving the, the property acquisition, but some people still just want to go around and play the action stuff and shoot stuff and steal cars. And so I had to figure out a way to make it where it, it was naturally in the game 
and it was something that you could totally dive into. But if you just wanted to blast through the story mode and just have action, you could pretty much do that as well. Uh, and then the other thing was trying to figure out as many different ways to weave it into the game as possible so that it wasn't just this boring, linear, repetitive thing of do mission, unlock building, do mission, unlock building. And so some missions you'll do and you'll naturally unlock buildings. But then in other cases, you can go around, shake down shops for, shops for protection money, uh, and then that will unlock certain buildings. In other cases, as you acquire certain buildings, you'll get a phone call saying, hey, I found this this new opportunity where there are a bunch of buildings in this area that we could get on the market and let's get them. And and each each time it does that, it's another opportunity as a different way to poke fun at things. So when you do get a phone call saying, hey, I found these new houses on the property and we could totally gentrify them or something like that, that's an opportunity to add some more jokes from a different side as opposed to just go to the mission, have a cutscene. here's the plan, okay, here's how it plays out. And so uh, it, it breaks it up and just, the, the other thing as well was multipliers. So you can boost the multipliers uh, on the buildings to boost their revenue. And the multipliers themselves are things like convenience fees, like adding lobbyists, like adding a multi-level marketing, uh, just all sorts of goofy stuff. And that was, again, another way to kind of slip in these jokes that satirizing these business practices without it always just being a cutscene with some dialogue. Well, now that we are just a, a week away from the release of the game, what are you most proud about about Shakedown? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm really proud with how it came together and I'm really, because uh, it was it was many years of, I had the vision in my head of what it could be and should be, but it wasn't there. It wasn't there yet. And for a long time, people would uh, ask, can I play test it? Can I play test it? And I'd say, no, it's not ready. It's not ready. And that's a little bit of a regret of mine because I should have just had people playing it early and often. But uh it took a really long time to get it to the point where the property acquisition melded with the game and felt fleshed out, where the the humor hit the right tone and was playful and tongue-in-cheek, where all of the missions worked together, all of the characters worked together, and uh, the fact that it finally came together in the end is just something that I'm just like, wow, I, I actually did it. <laughs> So Shakedown Hawaii is going to be out next week then on May the 7th on Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, uh, PC, and a limited PS Vita physical edition as well. Now, I know, That's Brian, right. you've uh, very generously um, donated a couple of codes that we can give away as well, so we're going to run a little competition on our website. If you'd like to win a copy of Shakedown Hawaii, just uh, nip onto our website. We'll leave the competition open for two weeks on the front page of theretrohour.com. Uh, Brian, we can't wait to play the game. You know, if it's anything like the first one, it's going to be incredible. So... Um, Best of luck with it, and thank you so much for coming on this week. Oh, thanks so much for having me.